The following podcast is meant for educational and entertainment purposes only and is not to be considered as legal advice and does not contain an attorney-client relationship. If you need legal advice, contact a licensed attorney in your state. Enjoy the show. Welcome to Plead the Sixth, where two lawyers and a real person talk about the law. I'm Catherine. I'm the real person. I'm Stacy Krause. I'm one of the lawyers. And I'm Courtney Daly. I'm the other lawyer. And today we're going to plead the fifth. <laughs> <laughs> I really like that you felt the need to just like jump in there with that joke real quick. Like you need to get that done. <laughs> <laughs> I did my joke in. As Courtney said before she stole my job, um, today we're going to be talking about the right to remain silent, commonly known as pleading the fifth. Uh, This one, I feel like maybe I know what it is. Maybe I know what's going on. I'm almost certain that that's going to be proved wrong almost immediately. Um, But if you guys will allow me, I'd like to explain what I think it is before you tell me how I'm wrong. Go for it. Okay. Um, I think that the right to remain silent comes from the Fifth Amendment, which gives you the right to not incriminate yourself. Okay. Yeah. That's, yeah, that's all I got. <laughs> <laughs> okay. We nailed it. It's a start. <laughs> um, yeah. I mean, the idea is that you don't have to make any statements against yourself that can be used in trial against you later. Right. Um, so that's where it comes from is this, this idea that you can't, you don't have to incriminate yourself in conversations with police officers at trial, even like in other proceedings that are not your own proceedings, unless certain conditions are met um, where uh, spoiler alert, the state can give you immunity and you can incriminate yourself <laughs> and you don't have what? a right to remain silent any longer at the point if the state gives you immunity, but we'll get into that. But yeah, so the right to remain silent is is present in multiple aspects of uh, criminal proceedings. Okay. So, so to, well, I guess we'll talk about where it comes from. Yeah, sure. Let, let's let's talk about where it originates. Do we want to talk about its place in the Fifth Amendment? Yes. Okay, so do you want me to read the whole Fifth Amendment or do you want me to pick out the part in question? Just pick up the part in question. Uh, yeah. I'm, you okay. know, as fun as it is to listen to you guys just read whole amendments, maybe we just, <laughs> maybe we just stick to the part that matters. <laughs> okay. So, um, no person shall dot, 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 be compelled in any criminal case to be a witness against himself, nor be deprived of life, liberty, property without due process of law. Yes. Um, I threw in due process in there because due process is a big part of the right to remain silent when it comes to, um, you know, whether the confession was voluntary or involuntary, that kind of thing. Cool, 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 cool. Do we want to go ahead and explain to me what due process is now or will that come up later? <laughs> oh, due process is such a big thing that I, I don't it even is. know that one hour would even touch the the tip of the iceberg with due process. But I guess in short term... Everyone in this country has due process rights under the Constitution that protect protect them from the overarching arms of the government. And one of those due process rights we're going to talk about right now, which is your right to remain silent. 
Coolio. Okay. <laughs> I will I will take that for now. I'm sure we'll devote a whole episode to it eventually. So so the Fifth Amendment tells us our is is the Fifth Amendment sort of the right rights to due process? Is that like is all like are like all of the due process rights under the Fifth Amendment? No. <laughs> no. No. There's... Okay, I'm just floundering around at this point then. <laughs> No, I mean, it is one of the due process uh, amendments. The other one is the 14th. Right. And then we also have due process under the Texas Constitution here in Texas. So there's a lot of places it comes from. Okay. You know what? Just going to sidestep due process then. Just going <laughs> to sidestep it entirely. Um, so so we have this little soundbite in the Fifth Amendment that tells us this, this right to remain silent. Um, and then... It comes up in your Miranda rights as well, right? That the, that little bit that cops say to you when they arrest you? Right. And let's talk about Miranda. Miranda was a Supreme Court case where the Supreme Court basically laid out for the government what they need to tell people if they're going to be in custody and they're going to want to get statements from them. So you kind of have two mm. pieces. You have to be in custody and you have to have statements. And so the right to remain silent is part of this Miranda um, case where they really made it part of our law. Like they made it very clear for everyone that the police have to tell people that they have these rights because a lot of people don't know necessarily. I mean, I feel like TV has really made everyone know about their right to remain silent. But before Miranda, (laughs) I don't think it was it was very well known that people had this right not to talk to the cops and not to make statements um, to the police officers that they had this right to remain silent. And so Miranda kind of outlined it for us and told us that the cops have to tell you about it. And so that's, that's kind of, and Miranda explains it much better, I think, than it had been explained previously or that the uh, constitution explains it because that amendment is pretty Um, basic and vague and doesn't really encompass what the right to remain silent actually encompasses today. Okay. So you were, you were talking about, you know, the, the two things that are involved in the Miranda rights are being in custody and making statements. Does that mean that you don't have those rights prior to those two things? No. So the, the idea between you know, the Fifth Amendment right to remain silent, it, it's more than just Miranda. Miranda is a piece of it. You have a right not to talk to police officers. You don't have to tell them anything. Even if you're not in custody, they approach you on the street and they say, hey, did you just steal from that store? You have the right to not say anything to them and not answer their questions, even though you're not in custody yet, right? Like you have the right to remain silent. But, and this is a very important but I'm about to tell everyone because there is a case that came out that kind of confused things a little bit. And there's a case that came out of Texas called Salinas v. Texas, where the United States Supreme Court kind of explained the right to remain silent pre-arrest. And what that is, is you have the right to remain silent. You have the right not to talk to police officers all you want. But if you don't want your silence to be used against you in court, you have to affirmatively invoke your right to remain silent. You have to say to police officers, you're not in custody at this point. You're not in custody. They're just asking you questions, you know, on the street and no handcuffs have come out. 
and you're free to leave and they're just asking you questions and you just, they, they ask you questions and you just sit there and you just stare at them and you don't say anything. That silence can be used against you at trial because you're not in oh. custody. So that silence can be used in like they can use it as evidence of incriminating. He didn't answer the questions because the answers would have been bad, right? Like that's how they can use it. Unless you don't just stay silent. You also say, I'm invoking my right, my fifth amendment right to remain silent. And if you say that to the officers, then are silent after that, none of your silence can be used against you. So kind of like a weird little um, beast about the right to remain silent there. Yeah, it's like a weird little loophole. Yeah, I wonder if it has to be like so specific, like, oh, I'm invoking my right. Because I've, I've had several um, family and friends send me this video going around where they say, you know, like the best way to get police to like let you go or whatever is just whenever they ask questions, just say, I don't answer questions. And that's how you respond to them. And they're always asking me, like, does this work? And I'm like, I mean, I, I don't know. I've never seen that in one of my videos. <laughs> but um, <laughs> I wonder if Salinas would count that as invoking your right. That's just me thinking out loud right now. Does that make me think of all I the mean, videos I've seen like that? I think I think we, we make the argument, if that's the case, that that's an invocation of your right, right? Mm -hmm. Like if you're saying, I'm not going to answer your questions. I don't think you have to say, I'm invoking my Fifth Amendment right to remain silent. I think you can just yeah. say something like, I know I have a right to remain silent. I'm going to use it. You know, like you don't have to be super specific in your language. You just have to make it clear to the officers that you know you're right and you're invoking it. Yeah. Sure. Yeah. I do think a, a quick distinction, though. So like like Stacey said, like Miranda is um, invoked or I guess triggered by being in custody. And uh, I know we've said statements, but I think. More specifically, it's like in like interrogation, something that is comes across as like them asking questions. So it's not just your statements. It's the officers making statements to you. I think there's that's an important distinction. Oh, they're trying to get you to incriminate yourself and you're in custody is the idea behind that. And the remedy, you know, the remedy is that they get the, the trial court will exclude the statements if it's violated. Right. Yeah. Um, if you're, but that's the only thing that violates is, is if they didn't tell you about your right to remain silent, it's kind of like this weird, silly thing. Everyone knows about it, right? But we still have this weird, silly thing where if the office, if you're in custody, if you're in handcuffs or custody can be defined a little more broadly than that, but we'll just go with if you're in handcuffs, um, and the officers are asking you questions and you respond to them and the officers have not read you your rights, then, then you know, that those statements don't come in. That That's basically what Miranda says. Oh, interesting. So, so the Supreme Court looked at the case that was coming in front of them and they were like, okay, you know what? Whether we all know, whether we all know that people have the right to remain silent or not, you have a responsibility to make sure that that person you're talking to knows that they're allowed to stay silent before you start poking at them. Yeah. Once they're in custody. Yeah, because the idea is that, like, any custodial interrogation setting, like, when the police are interrogating you like that, it's inherently coercive. So that what I mean by that is, like, it's not that environment is naturally going to make you want to tell them something because you're either scared, you're nervous, you don't want to be there, that kind of thing. So it's like it's protecting you from that natural 
I don't know if aggression is the right word, but that natural, natural, like opposition feeling that you get from, yeah, thank you. That's way better. The power and balance (laughs) that the police have with you. So that's kind of like their rationale behind that. And Miranda obviously encompasses more than the right to remain silent. It also uh, encompasses the right to an attorney. So, you know, it's, it kind of took care of a couple of things, you know, like people are supposed to be informed of certain things when they get arrested and they go into custody and they, before they start talking. And this only, only applies to talking to the police. So for example, you can get arrested and the police never ask you any questions. They never take any statements. They don't want to hear a word from you. They don't have to read you your Miranda. Miranda doesn't matter. It doesn't matter to them, right? Like that, that's not, Miranda only protects statements. That's all it does. Well, yeah. What, hmm, what would you want protection from that wouldn't be included in that? Well, a lot of our clients say, hey, they never read me my Miranda. Can I just get my case thrown out? Oh. Well, you know, well. that Miranda is not required is what we're saying <laughs> in order to be arrested. You don't have to, you don't have to have your Miranda read to you. You only have to have your Miranda read to you if they're trying to take statements from you. Sure. Now in Texas, we've got a few additional protections on top of that. We do have this idea of the magistrate's warnings that encompasses the right to remain silent as well. So this this applies to statements, and this is part of the code in in the Code of Criminal Procedure, um, when statements may be used, right? That's the title of this code. And that means when statements that a person makes to the police officers, when can those be used against them, right? And that's what this statute codifies. And it codifies Miranda to an extent. And so part of it is that they get these magistrate warnings that... So when you get arrested, you get taken down in cuffs to the jail, and then they they sit you down and they fingerprint you and they do some other things, and then you go in front of a judge. And that judge sets a bond and talks to you for a second if they want to, um, and then and then you go get put into the jail until you bond out or you get out some other way. So um, the magistrates, at, when they when you go in front of that judge, they have to read you these warnings, they're magistrates warnings, and it's an entire sheet of things that they're required by law, by statute to read to you. And one of the things that they're required to read to you is about your right to remain silent. So the magistrates warnings encompass this right to remain silent as well, telling you, you don't have to talk to me, you don't have to talk to anyone you're about to go see. You're in custody now, and you don't have to speak to a single other person. It's up to you whether you want to talk to people. You know, and so I'm going to read this to you, because this is part of what they have to be informed that you have the right to remain silent and not make any statement at all. And that any statement you make may be used against you at trial. That one's the one we all know, right? Uh, any statement you make can be used as evidence against you in court. You have the right to have a lawyer present to advise you prior to and during any questioning. And if you're unable to employ a lawyer, you have the right to have a lawyer appointed to advise you prior to or and during any questioning. And you have the right to terminate the interview at any time. Okay, so that's that's the official right to remain silent warnings that are included within this whole magistrate's warnings. Sure. The Miranda ones are a little snappier, but I get that the the judge (laughs) is is probably reading them in in less strenuous circumstances. Well, and these, these are the same rights that are read to them when they're arrested and an officer wants to talk to them. It's the same ones. So those five statements are the crux of it. And it's required by the code that those five statements have to be read 
just like that to the potential arrested person. Um, so Texas has gone kind of a little further because Miranda just requires that you be told that you have a right to remain silent. You have a right to an attorney. Um, and if you can't afford one, one will be appointed to you. Right. This one goes further and says that you have that right prior to and during any questioning, which is important, right? Because you have that right prior to your questioning. You don't have that right just during your questioning. Sure. And you have the right to terminate the interview at any time. And that is a, a piece that Texas has added so that people understand they can be in the middle of, they, they could have waived their right to remain silent and talk to the officers and halfway through go, you know what? I don't want to talk to you guys anymore. I invoke my rights. And that's, that's permissible. And it's outlined for them in the rights. Yeah, I can see how that would be important. So basically, Miranda is like the federal guideline, right? That's the floor. And the states can take that and add to it and protect you more, but they can't protect you less. So they at least have to meet Miranda, but states can, you know, add their own laws to um, add to Miranda, and that's kind of how the relationship, I mean, a little off topic, but that's how the relationship between federal and state laws work anyway. Like the, the federal laws are, are the floor and states can add to it, but they have to stay in compliant with like the federal, like the U.S. Supreme Court. Okay. That makes sense. Right. Yeah. So I don't know if we want to like break down custody and interrogation, Um Okay, yeah, that was that was going to be one of my next questions. Yeah, because we say, oh, you have to be in custody and interrogation, but like, what does that actually look like? What does that actually mean? Yeah, because because earlier Stacy said that um, it could be broader than just being in handcuffs. So so when do you know that you are in custody? <laughs> that is a statement of fact that the jury or the judge have to determine. Yeah, it oh, really no. is. like there's different kinds of like police stops that like us in the legal community use to determine like what kind of stop was this right so like there's one called like a terry stop and frisk it comes from a a a court case um i think terry versus ohio right something like that um and i can't remember what state but definitely terry so it's stop and frisk. No, it's Ohio. <laughs> one's in the center. Who knows? Yeah. So a stop and frisk is exactly what it sounds like. That's you know a temporary detention, but the courts have found that's not custody for a Miranda rule. So if someone, if a cop just comes up to you and does a stop and frisk, basically just like you know, at, like wants to talk to you, frisks you for weapons for their own protection, and that's not considered custody. So they're not required to read you your Miranda rights there. Like another example of where a Miranda would not be read is a routine traffic stop. I mean, when you know, you know, when you get pulled over for speeding or something like that, if they're just going to issue a citation, they don't have to read you your Miranda rights to speak to you and ask you questions. Right. Um, No matter if you want to remain silent or not, they're not going to read you those rights. Um, Of course, if that routine traffic stop turns into something else, then you might be cut in custody. But it, but it takes quite a bit for a routine traffic stop to turn into a custodial detention. So, like, they can stop you and they can search your vehicle, not custody mm-hmm. yet. They can, um, as long as they've developed the probable cause to search your vehicle. Mm-hmm. They can do the, ask you to do the SFSTs and you do the SFS. I'm sorry. They can ask you to do the drunk tests, right? All the tests, the walk and turn and the one leg stand where they think you're, they think you're intoxicated. You're not in custody at that point while you're doing those tests. Thank you for so. clarifying. <laughs> 
Yeah, no, I said SFST and I went, nope, nope. Let me explain that better. <laughs> Doesn't pass the Catherine test. <laughs> SFST, just for the record, stands for Standard Field Sobriety Tests. Got it. Cool, 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 cool. So, so these are examples of things that aren't custody. Mm-hmm. If you're not in custody, are you required to comply? No. No. <laughs> Short answer. <laughs> um, I mean, like, I, I like to say, I like to say, um, you know, be polite but uncooperative when dealing with the police. It's just, it's just <laughs> um, so, like, you know, even if you're not in custody but they're searching your vehicle, like, you know, you don't have to comply with that. You can tell them, no, that would be the Fourth Amendment. You know, you have other amendments in play. We're just saying the point in which they have to read you your Miranda rights is not there yet, Right. So if you're making statements and you're telling them stuff and you are not in handcuffs, you have not been accused or, you know, been told you're under arrest or anything like that. You're just making statements that you don't need to be making. <laughs> you're just talking really nice. And, and while we're talking about this, don't consent to anything. Yeah. Like, just don't. Make the police do their jobs. They have investigations to do. Don't make their don't make their jobs easier for them to build a case against you. Just don't don't do that. <laughs> yeah, sure. It, our quick pit stop at our, our at our routine. Don't consent talk. <laughs> yeah, don't. Yeah, it's it's one of those things where it's like we have we come across a lot of cases where if they would have just not talked to the police, they probably would not have been arrested, or they probably would have been let go, right? And it's hard. I mean, you know, 2020 hindsight, it's easy to determine that, right? In the moment, it might feel like the right thing to do. Like, maybe if I just tell them the truth, they'll let me go. You know, if I just tell them what they want to know, like, you know, if I just comply, like, you know, they'll let me go. But that they're not on your team, you know? Um, (laughs) That is so true. (laughs) Like, I mean, you know, police officers, you know, some of them do a great job. They really are out there to serve and protect. But even when they're serving and protecting you, when they stop you and like maybe, I don't know, allege that you may be committing a crime or something like that, they are no longer <laughs> um, on your team and you need to be playing defense. You're part of the um, people they're protecting the community yeah. from at that point in their mind. Okay. <laughs> Yeah, that's a, so, that's a great point. Yeah. Okay, so we've talked about what isn't custody, but what, <laughs> what could be custody. So um, you, again, you have to kind of consider the circumstances surrounding what's happening, right? Would a reasonable, per- reasonable person um, in their position believe that they're in custody? That's a legit, like, test. <laughs> Would a reasonable person at this time believe they're in custody? So, like... <laughs> If you're in cuffs in the back of a cop car, a reasonable person would believe that they're in custody. Okay. Because, like, like we said, like the concept of custody depends on the facts surrounding it and the question of laws surrounding it too. So, I I don't want to say definitely, but if you're in handcuffs in the back of a cop car. It's more likely than not that you are in custody. <laughs> more likely than not, I would agree with that. But I that would be. But I can come up with a circumstance where you're not. Yeah. Oh, I'm very. Um, you know, maybe you know, maybe I, I can't think of a reason why that wouldn't be considered custody. But then again, you know, there are those weird cases out there where, like, 
for some reason that's not considered custody in that situation. Uh-huh. <laughs> I mean, typically, if handcuffs have come on, you're probably in custody. Typically, yeah. Okay. <laughs> but but what are what are the broader what are the possibilities for what custody could look like that aren't handcuffed? So if you're in, yeah, like, okay, so police station or a police car, that's most likely custody. But then again, if you, Uh, unless you go willingly to the police station and you just show up there to tell them things, you're probably not in custody. Just physically being at the police station doesn't necessarily mean custody. But that's actually the facts of Salinas v. Texas is the guy went willingly to the police station and made statements to them, but at a certain point fell silent. And he wasn't in custody, so Miranda wasn't, you know, um, part of it, part of the analysis. So the question was, do, did he invoke his right to remain silent? And they said no, because he just fell silent. He didn't invoke it. Yeah. So it's, it, I know you said broad, but, like, there is no broad way to put it because, like, you really do have to get specific with stuff because there's a lot of if, ands, or buts in all of this. Um, like for sure. example, prison, bus, yeah. prison, you would think we literally say like, oh, that person's in custody, they're in prison. But that doesn't necessarily mean for the purposes of Miranda that they are in custody. <laughs> because um, because you can willingly talk to yeah. somebody about a case that you're not in prison for. Yeah. <laughs> so, <laughs> though you're in prison. Yeah. I mean, I'm laughing because like you would think that that would be custody, but again, it depends because it depends on what you're talking about, where you're talking about. But like if you're questioned in prison about um, events that are happening outside of prison, but then, then you are, you know, for Miranda reasons in custody. Okay. Okay. So, it really is, I mean, this is still vague, but if a reasonable person would believe that they are in custody <laughs> in that situation, then you are probably in custody. Okay, sure. Oh, wh- why not? So there, the reasonable person is such an important person mm-hmm. to the concept of the practice of law. <laughs> we, we use the reasonable person mm-hmm. standard for everything. And... Uh, you know, I think mentally we're all picturing ourselves, right? Like, well, like I'm <laughs> sure. a reasonable person, so this must be. If it were me, would I have? How would I have felt in that situation? Mm-hmm. But you'd be surprised how often, if you put yourself in that situation and you think, "Yeah, no, that I'm the reasonable person, and this is what I believe," the courts disagree with that point of view. It's crazy how often the courts find nope, huh. a reasonable person. So I'm like, so I'm not a reasonable person? Like, yeah, like if, a, if a cop stops me on the street and I wasn't in handcuffs, I would feel like I was in custody. <laughs> I think a reasonable person would, yeah. right? But the courts I have feel like I'm reasonable. Okay, so that custody, that's number one, right? You, first, are you in custody? Um, next is interrogation. So... It's, uh, I think it was like Rhode Island versus Innis, where they said like, you know, words or actions on part of the police that police should know are reasonably likely to elicit an incriminating response. I don't mean to start laughing, but like. (laughs) So what does that even mean? I'm getting flashbacks to to law school right now about that case. (laughs) And I'm like, that case was insane because it was just like. I mean, words or actions that a person, uh, you know, that the police should reasonably know, like, 
what does that even mean? Yeah. Right? So go ahead, Courtney, try so to explain what it. What does it mean? Like reasonably likely to elicit an incriminating response or like put in the police should know. So it would be like <laughs> the police are going to ask you a question that they should know. If you answer that question, you're probably going to confess to something. So for example, well, I feel like this is a good example, but I'm not sure if it is. If the police were like, um, you know, is that the victim's blood on your hands? <laughs> that could elicit uh, an incriminating response, and they should know that, right? Like that's a fairly yes or no question, and fifty percent chance that it could be incriminating. Um, well, actually, I think a hundred percent chance because if it's not the victim's, whose blood is it? <laughs> you have blood on so your maybe hands. That's yeah. A bad um, example. So this, I think that you know, your example is the example of what most people think of as interrogation, yeah. right? It's your question and answer session. What Courtney is about to get into though, is it goes broader than that. Like just your questions and answers is not all inter- interrogation can be, it might be all it is in your case, but there are circumstances where interrogation can be broader than just your question and answer. Yes. Okay. I think it might be on you to provide examples of that, Stacey. <laughs> Yeah, there are circumstances where the police should know what they're doing will elicit incriminating responses. Oh, there was a case out of this. I get what you're saying now. Okay. Right. So it's not, it could it might not be a question and answer session, right? They they could be um, making statements, you know, to the defendant um, and saying, you know, it'd be a shame if a, like it, there was a Supreme Court case. I think it yeah, was I know case. exactly which one you're talking about, but I can't remember the name of it. Where the 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 defendant had hidden a gun somewhere and the police were like, it sure would be a shame if some kid found that gun. And then the guy ends up taking them to the gun. And so that is considered, that was considered interrogation because right. Wasn't it? Or was it not? Dang it. Now I don't remember. I can't remember, but there was another case where they were making someone feel really guilty about like, there was like a little girl that like went missing and they were saying like their family's never going to find answers. Like, and so he like, confessed to killing and showed him where the body was yeah i remember that one that was like in iowa or something yeah i think that one was considered interrogation because they also have to look at like the that person and i think the person in that situation um had some mental disabilities that they knew about and so they were playing on that i think if i'm remembering the case correctly i wish i would have cited it and remembered it but I'm thinking back to like law school, so it's hard for my memory to remember. But I know same here. So maybe you know we're not. This, this all may have to be cut out, Catherine. <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah, like I'll definitely be editing this. Part. But for those of us that don't know or care about old case law, mm-hmm. can you just like give an example of what one of these circumstances might look like? Okay. Yeah. So uh, an example of like not actually asking questions. But it being the police knowing or should know that what they're saying or doing could entice someone to confess would be like if they have someone in the back of their police car. So we're going to call that custody. Um, And they're there and they're talking either to each other, like just the police are talking to each other or talking to the person in the back. And they're saying things like, um, let's say, like the person um, that's in the back like knows 
or is like suspected of knowing like where a bomb is. Right. And they're like, well, you know, think about, you know, what would happen if that went off in the wrong place? Like all the children that would die or like, you know, something like that, that using things that they think would get the defendant to confess to like, to say where the bomb was or something like that. Right. That could be considered interrogation. I say could because I made all that up and I don't know. <laughs> I don't know for sure if they would consider that interrogation, but that idea of saying things to try and get someone to confess without a- actually asking, Hey, where's the bomb? That is the idea of like trying to get them to say something without actually interrogating. So it sounds like it's, a similar case to the custody where if a reasonable person would have known that saying this would get an incriminating response, it's considered interrogation. A reasonable police officer. <laughs> not just a reasonable person. So, <laughs> so police officers are not people? Like, is that what? <laughs> not in this situation, no. <laughs> You know, the the Supreme Court jurisprudence is pretty important in this. And it gives us like fact scenarios, right? It gives us ideas of what the Supreme Court thinks is custodial interrogation and what they don't. Now, whether a reasonable person might think that or not, you know, nonetheless, we have these kind of hard rules with the Supreme Court. So in Innis, which is the one that Courtney brought up before, um, where they kind of define the scope of it a bit. Innis is the one where he was being transported and he had, you know, hidden the gun somewhere. And the cops were talking to each other saying, hey, you know, it'd be sure it'd be terrible if some kid found that gun that this guy used and the guy's in the backseat, right? And they're driving him to the PlayStation and they're they're saying these things. The Supreme Court said that that was not custodial interrogation, even though I don't think that the officers would have been having that conversation unless it was designed to try and elicit a response from the defendant. That's why they were engaging in that conversation in front of the defendant, right? Sure, it would be terrible if there was a kid who found that gun. Wouldn't it be terrible, Joe? Oh, yeah, Matt, it would be awful. There should be, <laughs> there, there should be a, you know, we, it would be, can you imagine a kid with this guy's gun that he hid somewhere? That would be terrible. And so, but the Supreme Court said that that was not custodial interrogation. So there you go. Hmm. Okay. Yeah, that distinction is important. Yeah, I, I can see I can see why having a specific case law would be important there because that that does shed a different light on mm-hmm. this conversation. <sighs> there are exceptions though, like there's the public safety exception. So I guess in my example with the bomb, like they probably could question that person directly without Miranda rights because it would be prompted by public safety to ask those without, you know, saying they have the right to remain silent. So it depends on an awful lot is what I'm hearing. Yeah. It depends. It depends. <laughs> it's a great area. But you know what? What what I'm hearing that is important is that whether you're in custody or not, whether they're interrogating you or not, you can still invoke your right to remain silent, whether or not you can invoke Miranda rights. And if you are in custody, you should absolutely refuse to talk. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That makes sense. And in 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 this vein, um, I don't think that people should be talking to the police ever. I have not seen, I mean, obviously in our cases, it has not behooved our clients to ever talk to the police. And usually our clients can only hurt themselves and not help themselves when they're trying to talk to the police. There may be situations that never come across our desk where the person cooperated with the police, told them something that incriminated them, and the cop just let them go. That we wouldn't know those cases because the cop just let them go. 
But I wouldn't take that risk. I would never take that risk. I would always keep my mouth shut, not talk to the police, because even though doing so may get you arrested, it will not get you convicted. Talking to the police can get you arrested and convicted. So I think that's an important distinction is you, you like you might have heard the phrase, you can't beat the ride or you might beat the rat, but you can't beat the ride. Ooh, I had not heard that phrase, but I like it. Right. The idea behind this is like the officer, if they've decided that, that there's some criminal activity going on and that's why they're questioning you and stopping you and ask, they're going to find a reason to arrest you. They are. They've already made up their mind. They're going to arrest you. And you talking to them just helps them find a reason to arrest you quicker. Mm-hmm. But what if I'm like super duper innocent though? What are you going to say that would be incriminating if you're innocent? Yeah, we're talking about saying incriminating statements. We're not saying the you, you know, there's a fight, the police show up, they ask you who did it and you don't say anything. Like if you were just a witness, okay, you can tell the police like what happened. <laughs> you know, we're, we're like, you know, but we're saying like, you know, if you're trying to explain something or, um, you know, like, you know, when you get pulled over, if you have had a drink, don't, don't. yeah, like <laughs> make them do their job. Like don't, yeah. Don't say, yeah, I've had seven drinks and I'm super intoxicated right now and I know I shouldn't be driving. Please don't do that. And I say this because we have clients who've done that. So please don't do that. I mean, okay. It, the police are not your priests. This is not time for a confessional. <laughs> I guess. Sure, sure. Know, be polite, <laughs> but uncooperative because you want to, your constitutional rights are important. And if you feel, if you are in a situation where you need to invoke them, don't be afraid to, you know? And there might be circumstances where people think, oh, this thing I'm saying isn't incriminating me, right? Mm-hmm. But they're wrong. You know? So for example, say you're driving a friend's vehicle, right? Or a friend, a friend loaned you his vehicle. And you know that friend got that vehicle under suspicious circumstances. And you tell the officer, yeah, I know my friend, you know, probably got this vehicle and it was stolen. You're, you just admitted to knowing that you are, you, you're committing a crime. That is a crime and it is a felony to drive a stolen vehicle that you know is stolen. So, you know, but you're thinking, I'm not incriminating myself. I'm incriminating my friend by telling the officer this, but you're not. You're incriminating yourself. So, so, so I'm, what I'm having trouble with is, is the line is like when, when you should stop saying things to the police. Because like, I believe that I'm like totally super innocent. Mm -hmm. Like when the cop pulls me over and I've had like one drink, I had like one drink at a party and it was like Mm -hmm. totally fine. And like, I know that it's totally fine. So it's surely it's okay if I just tell the cop that I had just like just one drink because like that proves that I'm innocent. So, So, but like we know because we've seen cases come through our office that like, that's not necessary that like that, might be used as evidence against you it will be used as evidence against it will you. be used as yes yes it will be we we know this you know because you now you now have admitted to drinking to the officer and now that in addition to anything else he observes can be used against you yeah, yeah. at that point you've yeah. given him at the very least reasonable suspicion that you're drinking while driving now we're not we're not i don't want this to come across like we're saying lie we're not saying lie We're just saying, saying, shut up. (laughs) 
be quiet. Keep it to yourself. Say it in your head and then don't say anything out loud. Uh-huh. The only things that you're required when an officer stops you for a legitimate stop is to tell the officer your name and your birthday. Now, are you always going to do that? No, you need to, you need to address the situation, assess the situation, mm-hmm. right? And figure out, well, should I, is this a situation where I could get into trouble? If you have been drinking, you can get into trouble. Even if you're positive, positive you're sober. <laughs> you don't know how well you're going to perform on those standard field sobriety tests. And they are not easy for me to do 100% sober and I have had practice at them. <laughs> those tests are not designed for you to do well on them, but they come in in a trial. You could be completely sober, but these standard field sobriety tests, you do terribly on them and then the state prosecutes you for it because you must be intoxicated because you did really bad on the tests. Okay. I, I'm sure that we'll have a DWI episode in the future where we can oh, complain sure we all will, yeah. about those tests. Um, but, but, but that's an example. Yes. But for me, the clueless citizen like where is where is that line like like i i believe that i am innocent what can i like like if i don't believe that i've done anything wrong is it still okay for me to talk to the police so i think that the tricky thing about answering that question is like well the circumstances around it, right? It really is a what is happening in the moment kind of situation, right? So like, obviously, if you didn't do something, like, it's not incriminating to say, I didn't do that. You know, you've got the wrong person or something like that, right? That's not incriminating. Those statements are not going to haunt you. Um, If that is the truth, (laughs) then, you know, that's not incriminating. But again, if it's like if, um, I mean, let's say like, you know, you did just have one drink you're, you are not drinking, you're not in driving while intoxicated, right? You are innocent of that crime. Um, you don't have to tell the officer, I only had one drink. It, it feels like you do because you want to be honest with them. It's no big deal. You just had one drink. But like we said, like that could lead to other things that you're just digging your own hole. Again, be polite, but uncooperative in situations like that, where it's like, you've not committed a crime you are innocent of the crime that you may be later accused of but giving them little little um you know little crumbs to follow you know you don't need to give them (laughs) but like we don't we don't want a hansel and gretel situation up in here (laughs) and but as we have learned from salinas v texas you need to affirmatively invoke Mm -hmm your right to remain silent with the officer. So he understands that you're not answering you're, you're, that you're not just being silent, but that you're actually sure. invoking your right to remain silent. And that way though, you know, your silence cannot be used at, incriminatingly against you later down in trial because you're refusing to answer the officer's questions. So what I'm hearing is that, you know, you, it's not that you cannot say anything ever. It's that you don't want to, your your job in this inst- in this interaction is not to persuade the officer of your innocence. You can deny things, but like you don't want to offer evidence as to how you are innocent because they may- they are going to use that evidence however they want to. Yeah, that's a great way okay. to put it because even in real life, you're not required to offer any evidence to prove your innocence, right? The state has to prove that you did something also and so like that carries to the police. The police have to 
investigate to see if you did if you actually committed a crime um but i this is a tricky subject though because like i don't want anyone to listen to this and be like well you know plead the six told me to you know to deny 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 and not say anything and then they end up in a big hole like we can't it's very whether or not you choose to remain silent is going to depend on the situation you're in right and like Stacey said if you want to remain silent make it clear to the officer that is what you're doing um you have these constitutional rights and we just want to encourage you to use them um, whether or not it's the right, uh, decision in your situation, like there's no way to tell that, right? Like I said, 2020 hindsight for some of our clients, had they not said anything, they probably would have been let go, not even arrested that day. Right. But in that moment, they didn't feel that way. And the, the opposite could be true. And I, and I feel like there's this natural in tendency in all of us to want to help the police, you know, the police are there, you know, and asking us questions and we want to try and be as helpful as we can be. And I think that's just, I don't know if that's there for all of us. (laughs) I mean, I I think, well, I think it is for a significant portion of people where they're like, Oh, officer, you're looking for somebody. Let me help you. What is that? You know, like, what are you doing? There's this tendency, I think, and I know that things are a little weird right now in our, in our community. So I'm probably not talking about our exact time period right now, but in general, <laughs> right? There is this, this tendency to want to be able to help the police come to the right conclusions and um, and do their jobs, right? The problem that we have is that um, that inclination to help the police often gets our clients into trouble. Sure. I want to pivot the conversation a little bit. We We've talked a lot about... Um, how the right to remain silent affects interactions with the police and, and how it, like, where it comes into play and all of that. How does it affect the rest of a case? Because that right to remain silent doesn't end when your interaction with the police ends. Like, does it come into play in court as well? Yeah. Oh, 100%. It's something I go over in Bordier. So in trial... A person doesn't ha- doesn't have to testify in their own defense, right? And that that idea that they're not testifying, the jury can't use that against them at all. The jury can't be like, "Well, I wanted to hear from the defendant and I didn't, so they must be guilty." The jury, jury the jury is prohibited from having those kinds of thoughts. Ideally, in an ideal world, we hope. <laughs> um, if I if- you can't think, if he was truly innocent, he would have gotten on the stand and said so. Well, I'm sure they're allowed to think whatever they want, but they're not allowed to argue that way. Well, and if if I've done a good enough job, you know, as their lawyer, then the jury is going to proactively make sure that they're not doing that to the client, right? Okay. So, um, you know, the idea is, you know, they have this right to remain silent and and the, it goes hand in hand with this presumption of innocence, right? So if the state didn't bring you enough evidence to convict them, but you really, really wish that you, you think that if they were innocent, they would have testified on their own behalf. So they must be guilty. That is not an okay thought to have. And so during my jury selection process, I really try to make sure that they understand that and commit to not holding it against him um, or her when we are in trial, you know, that they may or may not testify. And we oftentimes don't know if our client is going to testify or not until we're at that pivotal point where we have to make that decision. 
after the state has closed their case and everything, because we don't know what the state's evidence is going to be until that point. So a lot of times we don't even know if we want our client to testify. Our clients a lot of times don't want to testify because they're nervous Mm -hmm. and they know they're going to get on that stand and they're going to look nervous because that's, think about it. It's terrifying. You, you, your life is on the line and you're sitting on the stand and you're being questioned by, you know, your attorney who you're comfortable with, but then the state is going to get to question you and ask you questions that are probably not very nice. And then you have these people staring at you, judging you. Mm -hmm. And that is really, really scary. And one of the reasons why some of our clients don't want to testify is because they're so afraid of that process. And then one of the things I also say during jury selection is, you know, I I go through this whole process. Okay, what does a nervous person look like? And then they give me feedback. A nervous person that won't make eye contact, you know, is, is might be sweating, is a little shaky. Okay, what does a person who's lying to you look like? Right? And it's the same things. You can't tell the difference between whether a person is lying to you or is just nervous. They're the same thing. And so that's kind of how I hit it home in Voidire for jurors so that when they do end up back in that jury room deliberating and my client does get up on the stand and testifies or chooses not to testify, whichever one it is, and my client might look nervous on the stand, I have covered all bases with them so that they're not thinking about, well, they look like they were lying, so I'm going to convict them or they didn't get on the stand because they were going to have to lie. So I'm going to convict them. Right. So, um, so that that's where the right to remain silent is. It comes in during trial and it's really, really important. Yeah. Yes. Okay. <laughs> I mean, that, was really yeah, that makes sense. That was, that was a nice contained little package. Yeah. That makes sense. Well, once again, this is the part of where I do. <laughs> <laughs> when, we, when we get to reasonable doubt, Courtney's going to be all over it. Yeah. <laughs> Sure. Uh, I do want to circle back just a smidge because I knew we, I know we talked about like, you know, what happens if your Miranda rights or your fifth minute rights are um, violated? Like, what does that mean? And how, you know, when we have clients that come to us and say like, oh, I wasn't Mirandized, like, can my case get thrown out? Uh, I just want to hit a little bit more specifically that like, if you're not Mirandized and you make statements while in custody, through like interrogation or something like that, those statements can get suppressed where the state does not use those statements, right? Now, taking those statements out might force the state to get rid of the case because now they have nothing, right? Maybe your statement was the only thing tying you to the case, right? Or or your statements are the things that led them to the evidence. Yeah, exactly. That's the fruit of the poisonous tree concept. Yeah, that's where I was going next with this. Was that like it, they could dismiss the case that way, or when your statements get um, suppressed? Any like Stacy said, fruit of the poisonous tree, which is where if they used your statements to go and find other incriminating evidence, if that statement gets suppressed, the evidence that was found using those statements is also suppressed. Let's say may. Also. May. Yeah. It definitely depends. Like, is it, I, I, I think it's like, um, Possibly. could be, I think it's like if they could have gotten it another way or if other things could have led them to that too, then they can keep it. It's something really technical like that. Yeah. It gets really convoluted once she's really start going down that rabbit hole. Like there's so much, there's so much to that, that it fills an entire giant book. 
<laughs> like, I feel like that's everything with the law, though. It feels like every <laughs> term that you guys say to me, you're like, well, let me get out this entire manual on this one topic. Um, I know I know, we don't use these words a lot. We just use variations of the words. But most of the things that we're saying, you know, the, the answer is it depends. Mm-hmm. And that's just going to be the way that the law is. You know, you can ask us a question um, that you think is fairly straightforward, like, will those statements come in? And we go, well, it depends. You know, so uh, that's fun it, and easy to understand. Yeah, everything <laughs> is so fact specific to certain cases that we would need to know all the facts surrounding it to give you something more than it depends. And even if we know all the facts, it literally still depends. Yeah, I mean, it, <laughs> it depends on the judge yeah. that you have and their interpretations. Um, if the judge doesn't agree, then it might depend on the jury and whether you can convince them that they shouldn't mm-hmm. consider any of the evidence because it was illegally gained. Because um, that's always an argument you can make to the jury. So yeah, it's it, it always depends. And it, it may depend uh, the entire way through until you have a final verdict. And then you can appeal it. And maybe the appeals court will side with you as well. And be like, nope, this should have been suppressed because it was illegally obtained. And so it's, yeah. So you're never done <laughs> arguing. Yeah. <laughs> Pretty much. <laughs> I do want to clarify. I uh, I found it in my notes, the fruit of the poisonous tree. So if evidence brought in, if it was obtained from uh, an independent source other than like the illegal way they got it, that can come in. Another way it could come in, even if it's... Um, you know, by through a statement that was coerced illegally. If they could show by a preponderance of the evidence, which just means more likely than not, that the police could have found that evidence anyway without, um, you know, unconstitutionally getting that statement, right? So, for example, like, say, like, they coerced someone into um, admitting the location of a body, but if they could show from a preponderance of the evidence that they would have found the body anyway by a search party, you know, then, like, they can still bring that in. Sure. And when you say bringing something in, you mean being used as evidence at trial, correct? Yes, that the bringing something in as in, like, the jury can lay eyes on it. Sure, 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 sure. Because there's a, uh, I mean, that's... Uh, not really on topic, but, um, you know, in order for the jury to see the evidence, like there's little mini fights happening before that evidence goes to the jury. <laughs> yeah. Now I'm imagining these little slap fights between defenders and prosecutors. Like, no, that's my evidence. That's oh, my evidence. Right. Slap. <laughs> I mean, we may mentally want to slap. We, with, our we right, with our words. Uh huh. Fight with your words. Okay. And there's so much more to that. Like the fruit of the poisonous tree case law out there mm-hmm. is just, there's so much to it okay. that it would fill like five or six podcasts. We should just, yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure we'll talk about it at some point. I'll put it on the list. Yeah. Right now, <laughs> what we're talking about is right to remain silent. So, yeah. <laughs> um, okay. It feels like we're coming to a natural conclusion. Is there is there anything? Final thoughts. Final thoughts, folks. Um, I think, you know, everyone kind of knows my point of view on this. Um, Which is don't, don't talk, talk to the police. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I mean, obviously, what Courtney said earlier, we're not trying to suggest that, you know, if you're pulled over for speeding, that, you, that you're not polite and cooperative to the officer. Be polite and cooperative. But if he asks you to search your vehicle, say no. And if he starts asking you questions where you could, the answers could incriminate yourself, say I invoke my right to the Fifth Amendment. That's it. 
Sure, sure. Courtney? Yeah, I just, I, I will, I think the phrase I used was polite, but uncooperative. But, (laughs) (laughs) um, you know, just, I think the reason why people want to talk to the police is because kind of like Stacey said earlier, you know, we think we're on the same side as the police because we all, you know, want people to be safe and their job is to make people safe. So you, you're inclined to be like, Hey, we're on the same team. Let me help you out. But once they're approaching you, you're no longer on the same team as them. You're no longer on the side of the same side as them. They're now trying to protect the uh, community from you, like Stacey said. And I guess just my final, final thought is, you know, everyone has the right to remain silent, but not everyone has the ability. So work on your ability to remain silent. (laughs) Okay, that took a moment to penetrate because I was like, what do you mean? But um, (laughs) you're referring to those people who maybe don't have the sense to remain silent. (laughs) Yeah. We just we just want you to not incriminate yourself so that if you do bring a case to us or some other defense attorney, your own words haven't condemned mm-hmm. you. Sure. Okay. Well, I'm very tempted to just like let the rest of the episode just peter out in silence, but I, that doesn't <laughs> sound like a great, a very good end of a podcast. Um, so instead, I'm going to say thank you so much for joining us today for listening to Plead the Sixth. Check us out on Facebook and Twitter at Krauss Daily Law, as well as our website, KraussDailyLaw.com, where we will be posting this episode as, as well as all of our others. Um, and you're welcome to post or not post in the comments. Uh, and we're always happy to answer questions and even get into fights if you really want to, I guess. And make sure to join us next time as we are going to actually be releasing the episode where we are joined by the Honorable Judge Michael DeLeon. Uh, we had a great conversation with him and it's going to be a great episode. And now that I think about it, I don't know if I've ever actually said the right topic of next next time's episode before but i promise next time is going to be the episode with judge michael de leon uh so you don't want to miss it until then my friends keep pleading the sixth